So we continue our study this morning in the Gospel of Matthew, and this, uh, this account uh, of the life of Jesus uh, was written uh, near around the time when the apostles were beginning to, uh, beginning to die off, and this was a, an account that they were leaving for us of the story of Jesus of Nazareth, this man who came and radically and completely changed the world as we know it. And uh, this morning, this text that we're at is the beginning of, of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we've looked at his baptism, and then we looked at Jesus' temptation last week as our brother Chris preached for us. And this morning is the beginning of Jesus' ministry to us. And right away here, before we read the text, we see um, that Jesus is calling a group of people to follow him. He's calling a group of people to follow him. And there are so many things in this text that we're going to look at this morning that are totally countercultural and radical. We might miss it when we first look at it. But the idea of a teacher, a rabbi, to call a pupil, a student, was totally unheard of. It was totally unheard of. It always goes the other way around. It even goes the other way around now. You know, a, a student goes to a teacher and says, can I learn from you? Can I learn under you? Can I study uh, under you. Even now, the way that the, 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 the PhD process in, in universities work is you submit a proposal to an advisor, and that advisor says, yes, I would, I'd be willing to consider that kind of research because it benefits me. It benefits my work and what I'm doing, and I will allow you to study under me and to learn and, and, and maybe contribute to what I'm doing. But what Jesus does here is, is not that at all. Jesus does the opposite. He goes to the disciples, he goes to you and me, he says to the world, and he says, come. He says, follow me. Leave your nets, leave your life, leave everything that you know, and follow me. And the point is, is that you cannot come to Jesus unless he first calls you. You cannot come to him unless he first comes to you and calls you. And what this text is going to show us this morning is something very radical, even about where Jesus goes to call people. He begins his ministry in Galilee. He doesn't begin his ministry in Jerusalem. He doesn't begin his ministry in the center of things. He doesn't begin his ministry where the religious uh, elite were. He begins his ministry in Galilee. He begins his ministry at the northernmost point of the kingdom. He goes to the outer limits, as it were. He goes to great lengths to meet people and to call people and to call these disciples. You ever consider the fact that you know, many of us were born and raised in one of the most furthest points away from Jerusalem on the planet? This is the ends of the earth. The Pacific Northwest is the ends of the earth if you consider the call of Jesus and the call of, to his disciples to go to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But that's always what Jesus does. Jesus goes to Galilee. That's what we've seen in his ministry so far, that he's not ashamed to call those four women in his genealogy his mothers. He's not ashamed to welcome those wise men from the east to be his disciples. He's not ashamed to go to Galilee first, the first place that he proclaims the gospel of the kingdom, The first time he says, repent, come, follow me, is in Galilee. 
Let's read our text this morning. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through the end. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This ends the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your word to us this morning. We are grateful, Father, that you initiated the call to us. The call must first come from you. Father, you sent your son who accomplished the life that we ought to have lived satisfied the wrath that we deserved. You sent your spirit upon the church and then you sent your church to proclaim the gospel and somehow over millennia that gospel came to us and called us. We are grateful for it and we long to see our Lord Jesus in this text We long to see his beauty and glory. We long to be transformed by it. We are a broken people. We are a people who are sitting in darkness. And we need your great light to shine into our lives, shine into our souls. Father, we expect and we ask humbly that your spirit would meet us as we sit under the preaching of the word. Help me as I preach. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have four points this morning, and it's all about Jesus' call. First, his call is unique. Second, it is costly. Third, it grows. And fourth, it's possible. It's unique, it's costly, it grows, and it's possible. First, it's unique. Verse 20. Three. 
says that Jesus went through all their synagogues proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now, this word gospel, this word gospel is a word that is totally new and unique to religious language at the time that this was written. Up to this point, uh, the word gospel would have been familiar to a first century listener, but it would have had different connotations. One place that we see this word gospel is in this inscription. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. The good news of Caesar Augustus. The way that this word had been used so far, this word gospel, which means good news, which means, good, which means, which means joyous news. The way that this word had been used so far was politically. But it was used in such a way that was as an announcement. It was a declaration. It was an announcement that the king had come and that the king had conquered. The good news of Caesar Augustus was that he was now reigning. So when Jesus comes and he says, repent for the, ki- for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, believe the gospel, the good news is that Jesus is the real king that has come. He's stepping into the first century. He's using the language that would have been used by Caesar Augustus, and he's saying, this is the real and true gospel that you've been waiting for. The gospel. The gospel is a history-shaping event that changes everything. It's something in history that has been done for you. It's something that's been done for you that changes you forever. Look, every other religion is basically good advice. Every other religion is tips for how to live a better life. And further, every other religion says, if you obey these rules, then you will find favor with God. But the gospel is totally turning that on its head. The gospel says that God in his loving, gracious mercy condescends and comes to you first. He calls you. He goes to Galilee. He goes to the ends of the earth and he comes to you and he calls you first. The gospel, my friends, this is the most important thing you will ever hear me say. Ever. The gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news. It is never good advice. It is never tips for how to live a better life. It is never ways to get your marriage better. It is never ways to make more money, to be successful with your neighbors. The gospel is always good news. It's good news of God coming down and saving you. Jesus comes with a declaration. Jesus doesn't come with a list of things to do. Jesus comes with a declaration. I have conquered. I have overcome. And I am calling you to come under the shadow of my wings and follow me. The gospel is never good advice first. It is always good news. You see how... how, how that changes everything. Because if the gospel is moral advice or Jesus is just coming as some kind of moral exemplar, then what's coming before you is a weight. It's a burden. If Jesus is saying, live this way, then you will find favor with God. Live this way, then you will find blessing from God. Then there's a weight that's coming before you. It's a burden that's coming before you. It's saying, rise to the occasion. Rise to the occasion and then you will find favor with God. But Jesus isn't coming primarily as a moral exemplar, though he is one. That's not primarily why he's coming and what he's coming to do. He's primarily coming as a savior. 
He's the Savior King. And that is what we sang about this morning. When you stand in front of a moral exemplar, you feel a weight. But when you stand in front of good news, when you stand in front of someone who is announcing something that has been done for you, it changes you. It changes you. My friends, we sang this morning about being weak and sick and sore, and we sang these words. We say, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. What words of grace those are. Because the gospel never says, get your act together, then come to me. The Lord never says, get yourself together, and then you can come under the shadow of my wings. If you wait until you are better, you will never come at all. For two reasons. First, you'll never get better. You'll never get better. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. And second, because that's not the way of the gospel. The way of the gospel is to not come with our hands full. The way of the gospel is to not come with our deeds beaming. The way of the gospel is to come as those that are weak and sick and sore. To acknowledge the fact that we are from Galilee. We are in the corner of the earth. We are weak, we are sick, we are sore. Every single one of us comes here this morning with burdens. Burdens of raising our kids, financial concerns, relational strifes, marital difficulties, unforgiveness with siblings. All of us, we all have difficulties this morning. And Jesus comes to us with gospel. He comes to you this morning with a declaration. He comes to you and doesn't say, rise to the occasion. He comes to you and he stands before you through the preached word and he announces good news. Second thing he announces is he announces the kingdom. The kingdom. You know, at the beginning of the scriptures, Genesis 1 to 3, we learn that we were meant to live with God. We were meant to live with God in perfect harmony. We were meant to live with him in that garden where his presence would be always before us. We were meant to live with him where there would be harmony between our fellow man. But sin entered the world. And sin entered the world through one main manifestation, and that is self-absorption. Sin entered the world in self-absorption, the darkness of self-absorption. And there's nothing really more disintegrating to life, to relational life, to life together as self-absorption, of desiring to be our own Savior and Lord, a desire to see things go the way we want to go. What Martin Luther called the very heart of sin is he said it was being curved in on ourselves. That ultimately, sin was us being curved in ourselves where our number one desire was to just see our way done. So that now we use relationships, we use the people around us so that we might get our way, that they might serve us, that their purpose in life is to make me feel right. Their purpose in life is to give me the life I always wanted. We even think that way about marriage. The purpose of marriage is not for that person sitting next to you in that metal chair today, to make your life better. The purpose of marriage, my friends, is for you to give your life to them. We think about it with our children. If we don't give ourselves to our children, our children will never thrive. 
But the heart and the nature of sin is that we are self-absorbed, that we're turning. But the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, is God actually coming to bear on this world as we know it. It's the curse. It's the effects of sin beginning to be peeled back. Lindsay read the text to us this morning when Jesus said, today this is fulfilled in your midst. Jesus is making an absolutely incredible declaration about his own ministry. He's saying at that moment when he's standing there and he's reading from that Isaiah scroll and he's beginning his public ministry and he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, he's saying now, right now, right this very second, the effects of the fall, the effects of the curse are being peeled back. Relationships are beginning to be restored. You notice the different things that are mentioned in this text. There's reconciliation with God, and there's also reconciliation with the physical world as we know it. He's healing people. Diseases are being healed. The poor are being met and treated. It's because the kingdom as we know it, the way that things always ought to have been, the way that things always should have been, is beginning to come true. You know, every most cultures are characterized by legends of the true king coming back to rescue. And the gospel of the kingdom is that Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the son of God, is the true king that has come back. He is the true king that has come back to rescue us. My friends, it's amazing what the scriptures are teaching us here. You know, every other religion, particularly you know, a humanistic or a materialistic worldview says that everything as we know it is basically just going to burn up and disintegrate. That at, at, as, as the sun extinguishes and, and the sun goes dim, then everything as we know it is basically just going to, is going to disintegrate and, and, and that's it. But what Jesus is telling us here is that the material world is made by God and that he's going to renew it and we're going to live on it forever. <laughs> Jesus bringing the gospel of the kingdom is not to escape the world as we know it, but it's to renew it. Do you see how radical Christianity is, therefore, and different from any other religion in the world? Caring for the poor, diseases being healed, the gospel of the kingdom coming to us, right relationship with God, and restoration with our fellow man. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. You know, these words, repent. I think sometimes this word repent is a four-letter word to us. It's a word of, of burden, it's a word of, I don't really want to do that. But the word repent is such a word of grace to us. The word repent simply means to turn. It means to turn from the way you're living, turn to the, from the thing that you're finding your hope, your identity from. Like think of this phrase, is it sounds, would it be odd for me to say to you, repent of your anxiety? Almost seems burdensome, repent of your anxiety. But to repent of your anxiety means to repent of thinking that you can determine and dictate the future. But instead, turn in faith and trust and hope to Jesus. Give your hope to Jesus. Know that he cares deeply for you. Don't let your heart be weighed down by thinking about the future yourself. Let your heart be enamored with his beauty and glory. Let your heart find its rest in the fact that he knows the beginning from the end and he means all things for your good. That's what it means to repent. 
It means to find your functional trust, your functional hope, your functional identity, your functional significance, your functional security in Jesus Christ alone. So that's the first point. His call is unique. It's different than any other call. Any other call under the sun. Second, though, it's costly. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat, with Zebedee, their father, and mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Jesus here. Jesus here is saying that he wants absolute and utter priority over every aspect of your life. It is a high and it is a costly call to follow him. He's saying, I want supreme allegiance from you. He even, in a later place, he'll say this, right? In Luke 14, he'll say, now the crowds, great crowds accompanied him and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus says, if you don't hate your family, you don't hate your own wife. Obviously, the Lord tells us that we're to love the Lord our God and love our neighbor as ourselves, so he must not mean actually hate. But he's saying this. He's saying, compared to your allegiance to me, compared to your love for me, it almost would seem like you actually hate those that are closest to you. It is a costly, costly call. This text challenges us This text challenges both a liberal and a conservative mindset (laughs) because Jesus is calling these men here to leave their family and their career. You know, a conservative would find their hope or their significance in in, in family, and a liberal tends to find their hope and significance in, in their career. And Jesus addresses both of them. He says, leave everything. Leave your father and leave your source of income. Leave your source of employment. He says, I want absolute sway, absolute priority over every single aspect of your life. But you know, what's interesting to me is when I think about different Christians that I've known or different critiques of Christianity that I've heard is that we either find people to be hypocrites or fanatics. We either find people to be hypocrites or fanatics. And what, what, the, what, what, what the mold of the world really wants for us is just kind of this, this middle ground, this, this lukewarm kind of Christianity where we do actually, we're not hypocrites. We actually, you know, we, we, we don't judge people and, 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 we, and we love our neighbor and so on. But we're not like fanatics. We're not like, you know, it doesn't actually like dictate every aspect of our lives. And by fanatics, we generally are talking about people that are, you know, highly judgmental, uh, those that, um, that are constantly writing uh, blogs about, about different kinds of people and so on. But what's striking to me is that either option really isn't what Jesus is calling for. He's not really calling for hypocrites and he's not really calling for fanaticism either. Because in reality, my friends, fanaticism doesn't really go far enough. Because fanaticism says that you have a connection with God because of your right living and your right beliefs. But the gospel goes back to the first point. 
says that God came to you when you were in Galilee, when you were sick and sore, when you were poor and needy, and he gave you everything that you have. He restored your hope. He restored your life. He saved you. And if the reality of that really sinks in, it wouldn't make us a highly judgmental, fanatical people, but it would make us a people that were absolutely doggedly loyal and gave our supreme allegiance to this Jesus of Nazareth. And at the same time, it would make us utterly humble. It would make us an utterly humble kind of people because we know that everything that we have, even our own salvation, is because this man sent from God had to die for us. Have we ever grasped, have you grasped the fact, my friends, that you are a sinner saved by grace? A real Christian is a gospel fanatic. And it won't look like an extremist. It won't look like a fanatic to everyone else. It's a costly call. It's a costly call to follow him. But the third point is that it grows. The third point is that it grows. And what I mean by that is really what we see here in this text when he says, I will make you fishers of men. No, I don't know how we normally or how you have normally thought about that verse, but it is a, it's the idea of a process. It's the idea that something grows. It's the idea that something progresses, that we don't simply have uh, all the goods, as it were, to be the fishers of men that we might be someday the moment that we first come to Jesus. It's developmental is maybe a way to understand it. We're thinking about this text this week and thinking about what it means to be a fisher of men. And I was thinking about how uh, in the scriptures, the sea is always a place where there is chaos. The sea in the scriptures is a place and is an analogy for chaos and even death. You know, the book of Revelation tells us that the sea is no more, which I take to mean that there is no more chaos, that there is no more disorder, which there is no more death. It isn't striking, though, that the analogy that Jesus uses of his disciples is that they would be fishers of men, that he employs this language of the sea. Because the reality, my friends, is that the place that we find our discipleship, the place that we become fishers of men, is in the things of the sea. It's in the chaos of life. It's in the kingdom of of this world. And the call to us is to draw people out of that kind of darkness, The call is to draw people out of that kind of chaos. The disciples had no idea, though, where this call to follow Jesus would actually take them. They had no idea what it would take to actually call people out of this kind of chaos. I mean, the text sort of alludes to it in our first verse here. Now when he heard that John had been arrested... I don't think that John the Baptist thought that the call of his discipleship would be that he would be arrested, and we'll learn, learn shortly that he's actually going to be beheaded. I'm sure that they thought that following this Jesus of Nazareth was going to be from glory to glory, was going to be from triumph to triumph, was going to be towards Jerusalem, not towards the cross. But they'll see as these men follow Jesus, as he makes them to be fishers of men, it's through the chaos of this world. It's through the whoop and wharf of life. It's through the trials and struggles. These men at different points will be on the, on, on the run for their, for their very lives. 
that they're made to be fishers of men in the chaos and in the things of life. My friends, the point that I think Jesus is making for us is that we can't give something away that is not already ours. We can't actually call people out of darkness unless we ourselves have actually tasted and seen how good the Lord really is. So that when we see, when we come to him, that doesn't mean that all of our problems are immediately fixed. It means that we now have hope within them. We have hope within the trial, hope within the struggle, hope within the chaos and the things of life. It's a developmental thing. It's a process. It grows. Have you met someone like this? Have you met someone like this who you know has gone through the things of life? They've gone through the struggles of life. They've gone through the trials of life. They've gone through the pains of life. And you look at them and there is a peculiar joy about them. There's a peculiar light about them. They've become fishers of men. They can actually call people out of darkness because they've walked through it themselves. They've walked this path, this costly road with Jesus, not wavering from side to side, but following him through the things of life. This last um, Friday, uh, this last week was Severn's 40th birthday. And this last Friday, we had a, we had a, uh, a, a time to celebrate him, and, and a lot of men from the church were there. And uh, we spent a time uh, just sharing and, and honoring Severn for the impact and, and, and his ministry and, and his life to us. And I was so struck and so blessed to hear how he has impacted so many different people in this church. And I mean, I have my own stories about how he's ministered to me, but to hear the ways in which he has ministered to everyone else in this church was truly a blessing, and it was a great delight to me. And when I think about someone who has walked through the things of life, who's walked through some of the chaos of life, and has not wavered from side to side, but has followed that costly road of discipleship and truly tasted and seen that the Lord is good, I think about that man. Because discipleship, my friends, is something that grows. We become fishers of men when we have actually walked through the chaos of life and come through the other side and we've seen that truly the Lord is good. But there's no other way. There's no shortcut to actually be a fisher of men except this costly road of discipleship. The path to becoming fishers of men. You know, there's an analogy that... um, that Tim Keller uses about what we think it might be to follow Jesus. And he says, uh, ask a seven-year-old. I have, I, have, I have a, actually I don't have a seven-year-old right now. I have a 10, 9, 8, 6, 3, and 1-year-old though. Ask an 8-year-old to sit down and write uh, what is the purpose of marriage? What's marriage all about? And my son could do that. My son, he, he could write something. He could write something down about what marriage is all about. And uh, it, would be, it would be true in as much as an eight-year-old can write something true about marriage. But at the same time, we would look at that and we would say, 
It is so much more than that. And what Jesus is saying when he says, come follow me and I will make you to be fishers of men, we have an idea of what we think that might be. But it is far more, it is far more costly than we probably would ever dare imagine. And yet, on the other side, when we actually do become fishers of men, we will know that it was absolutely and completely in all the worth it. Well, let me begin to move us to a close. My friends, we have no idea how hard it is. The disciples had no clue. Jesus says, follow me persistently, no matter the cost. And Chris made a point last week. I'm going to make an aside here. Chris made a point last week that I think is very crucial to us. And he made a point about our doubts in the midst of of our circumstances. And I think he was spot on, and I think it's a prophetic word to us, that when we have doubts, when we waver concerning the promise, our doubts are not primarily intellectual. We may think they are. We may think that they're intellectual. But our doubts oftentimes come in as a result of our circumstances when it seems like the facts of life are contrary to the promises of God, when it seems like this path of discipleship is not what I signed up for, I did this, how am I getting this? When we're, the things of life are just absolutely inexplicable to us. Those are the times, those are the times that we're most challenged to doubt. We're most challenged to say, could this How could this be from God? How could this be his loving care in my life? And the challenge of the Christian life is to believe. Repent and believe the gospel. The greatest fight in the Christian life is the fight of faith. Is the fight to believe. The fight to believe and see that the Lord is good. He means all things for our well-being and care. Even when the circumstances make absolutely no sense to us. It made no sense to Joseph, I'm sure, as he found himself in the pit. It made no sense to him, I'm sure. And yet, decades later, as he's finally in Pharaoh's household, saving his family, he says in Genesis 50:20, now I know. But in the midst of it, my friends, in the midst of it, it must have seemed absolutely inexplicable to him. The fight of the Christian life is primarily and ultimately a fight of faith, which is my fourth point, that this costly road of discipleship can be done. This is my second Tim Keller quote of the sermon. I apologize. But this is from his book, King's Cross. And he's talking about the cost of discipleship. And he's talking about this book that was written by George MacDonald called The Princess and the Goblin. And this guy, George MacDonald, uh, he wrote this book as a children's book about 150 years ago. And it's, it's available 
uh, for free on the Kindle, actually. But the story is about this, this, this girl, Irene, who is this, this eight-year-old, and she's found a, an attic room in her house, and every so often, her, um, her grandmother, her fairy grandmother, as it, as it, as it were, appears, appears there. And when Irene goes to look for her, she's often not there, though. So one day, she, she comes to her grandmother, and her grandmother gives her this ring. And there's this thread, though, that's tied to the ring, and, um, and there's this little ball that, of, of thread. And grandmother says, keep the ball, keep the ring. And Irene says, but I can't, I can't see it. I can't see the thread. And grandma says, well, no, of course not. It's too fine for you to see, but you can only feel it. And Irene reaches out and she can feel it. And grandmother says, now listen, if you ever find yourself in danger, you must take off the ring, put it under your pillow, and then you must lay down your, your, your hand on, your, on the ring and follow that thread to wherever it leads you. If you ever find yourself in danger, you must put the ring under your pillow and follow the thread to wherever it leads you. And, and Irene says, oh, how delightful. It will lead me to you, grandmother. I know it. Yes, said grandmother. But remember, it may seem a very roundabout way, but you must not doubt the thread. Of one thing you may be sure, that while you hold it, I will always hold it too. So a few days later, Irene is in, in bed, and, and this is the goblins, the princess and the goblins. The goblins get into her house, and, and she hears them snarling in the hallway and so on, and, and she suddenly has the presence of mind to take the ring off and, and to put it under the pillow, and, and she feels for the thread, and she finds it, knowing that the thread will always lead her to her grandmother, but to her dismay, the thread takes her outside, and she realizes soon that the thread is taking her right to the cave of the goblins. And inside the cave, the thread leads her to this great wall, this, this heap of stones, this dead end, and, and she doesn't know what to do, and she, she bursts into tears, and she's wailing, and, and she realizes that the only way must be, to, must be to tear down this wall of stones. And so she begins to tear down the wall of stones one by one, and suddenly she hears this voice from the other side, and it's, and it's her friend who's been trapped in this gob- goblin's cave. And he's shocked, how did you ever know to come here? And she replies, well, my grandmother sent me. And... Irene has followed this thread this far and removed the rocks and, and, and so on, and, and her friend begins to jump out and go out of the cave. But the thread keeps going down. And he says, we, we have to go that way. I have to follow the thread. This is the way the thread goes, and I must follow it, she says. And indeed, the thread proves to be trustworthy because the thread ultimately does lead her to her grandmother who is trustworthy. My friends, Jesus told his disciples, follow me, follow me, and they had no idea. They had absolutely no idea where he was going. And Jesus, my friends, says to you and me, follow me. We are going on a journey, and I don't want you to turn to the left or to the right. I want you to put me first, keep trusting with me, stick with me, don't turn back, don't give up, turn to me in all the disappointments and all the injustices that will happen to you. I'm going to take you to places that will make you say, why in the world are you taking me there? And even in those times, he's saying, I want you to trust me. And my friends, we know we can do it. We know we can do it. We can possibly follow the thread. We can possibly follow this path of discipleship because Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't already done himself. When James and John are called to leave their father in the boat, he had already left his father's throne. 
He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite, his grace. And later at the end of his life, he was ripped from his father's presence on the cross. As you follow your thread, and it takes you to seemingly dead-end places, places that you never thought it would take you, places that you thought would crush you, you cannot go backwards You can't turn to the right or to the left because we know this, that Jesus Christ's kingship will never crush you because he was crushed for you. He's the one that took the true, costly path of discipleship that led him to be crushed for your sake. That the full wrath of God was poured out on his head for you. And because of that, your path of discipleship Your costly road of discipleship will never crush you. It will always lead you back to him, into his gracious and loving arms. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful. We are grateful for your word. We are grateful for this high call of following you. But as the disciples have said to you, where else could we go, Lord? For you alone hold the words of eternal life. Lord, we just pray that your spirit would enable us to trust you and see you, that you would make us truly to be fishers of men, that we would be those who have truly tasted and seen, and we actually can call people out of darkness because we have something to give to them because we have it ourselves first. We're grateful for your word, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.